The following audio is from Abner Creek Baptist Church. For more information, visit www.abnercreekbaptist.com. Well, it is so good to be here at Abner Creek. I say that genuinely. Uh, There are very few places on earth that I would rather be uh, this morning than to be with you and be talking about the book uh, of Revelation in the church in Philadelphia. So I'm going to ask you to turn there to Revelation, the last book in the Bible, Revelation chapter 3, beginning in verse 7. Before I do that, I realized the last time that I was here that I have done a pretty poor job of, up, of updating many of you, those of you who, who love Whitney and I well, um, about what's going on in our lives. So we are looking, praying, continuing to press on toward being on the mission field in Peru. Um, what Whitney will be doing is, is taking care of a lot of uh, ladies' ministry things. There are great needs there among the women who carry the burden of the family many times because of absentee fathers. Um, I will be doing some pastoral training. There's no way to reach uh, native people like um, using native people. So um, these, these brothers are very thirsty for many of the resources that we have here. Uh, in the state, so that's what we would like to be doing. Um, we thought we would be going, uh, you know, later this year. Probably going to be about this time next year or something like that. So just continue to pray for us as we try to patiently discern what is the wisest thing to do. Uh, as we look at Revelation, there are some things that we need to say up front because a lot of uh, the the discussion around Revelation can get crowded out or clouded out by maybe some you know intramural things about the end times. We kind of think of Revelation as being the end times book, right? And so, um, but what's happening here? What we need to remember is the fact that uh, Revelation was written to a group of believers who lived at a specific place in a specific time. So if we're going to understand how to interpret Revelation today, we need to try to put ourselves in the shoes of those who would have heard it first. Okay, The things that are going on among these believers are intense, intense persecution. Uh, Christians are being crucified upside down. They're being boiled alive. There's the old phrase, perhaps you've heard from history, Nero fiddled. The, the emperor Caesar, Nero fiddled while Rome burned. Um, many, many historians claim that Nero set the city of Rome on fire just so he could blame the Christians and increase persecution. These are dark days. And into this situation, uh, these churches heard these words. And there's a theme that continues to weave in and out of, of the addresses to all of these churches and really uh, that echoes throughout the rest of the book. And that is this phrase, to the one who conquers, I will blank. You, you've heard that because you've already heard uh, sermons of five other uh, sermons from the churches, uh, five other churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat the tree of life. To the one who conquers, he will not be hurt by the second death. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna. Uh, To the one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, I will give him the authority over the nations. And now we hear, to the one who conquers. This word is interesting. Perhaps another word, if you have a different translation other than the ESV, another word that you can have in your mind is the word overcome, or who endures, or the one who perseveres. There's this idea that God has promises for his people that he will bring to bear 
But he doesn't promise that it will be easy between now and then. And so the job for believers is to press on. And for the one who endures to the end, there is a reward that is unimaginable. This is the theme that sets up how we are to look at this at this book, we have, to, we have to put ourselves in the shoes of these people to understand just how intense this persecution was and how near death was. I'll give you a story from, from just the last century. Okay, in the 1920s, Calvin Coolidge um, was the president, and he had a son. He had two sons, Calvin Jr., and he had another son named John. And they were playing tennis, the two boys, um, on the White House tennis court. Calvin Jr. decided that he was going to uh, play with no socks on inside his shoes. While they were playing tennis on the White House tennis court, he developed a blister on one of his toes that became septic. In a couple of weeks, he, he was dead. Just to, just to put in your mind how recent that was, his brother that he was playing tennis with lived until the year 2000. It's before the advent of modern medicine, before the advent of modern antibiotics. There's a church that I'm familiar with. It's a historic church up in the mountains of Virginia. One of the most striking things about this church is the graveyard. If you go out into the graveyard, you'll see these little tombstones. And in all the same year, in December or January of, of that year, right, the, the year changed, so December of 18-something and then January of the following year, how many children died? It must have been a very difficult winter. It says they were born on this date, and then two weeks later, they were laid to rest. Okay, go back not just 100 years, not just 150 years, but 2,000 years. Life was difficult and brief. And these people were encouraged by the words that Jesus gave to John when he said, Press on. Keep going. There's a little background that we have to talk about. Philadelphia was a town that was situated on a postal route, okay? When you read about uh, the church in Philadelphia, there's not a rebuke here. Jesus doesn't tell them, hey, you're doing this wrong. And so at first glance, it seems like, man, there's really no, there's really no juicy stuff here. What, what are we going to preach on? But the reality is, is that um, there are some things going on that we need to notice in order to understand what Jesus is saying to this, to this church. It was on a postal route, so they had good commerce. It had volcanic soil, one of the th- I'm not a farmer, but apparently volcanic soil is good for growing fruit of the vine. So they had lots of vineyards, okay? They, they produced wine. It was a main source of income. But what also comes along with the, uh, the volcanic soil is the, you know, the plates that are moving, and apparently they had a lot of earthquakes. And in the year A.D. 17, they had an earthquake that leveled the city. Okay, what happened with, with the city was... Um, they, they were so broken that they couldn't even pay the tribute to Caesar, that they couldn't pay their tax to, to have the protection of the, of the empire. But Caesar said, hey, I'll, I'll forgive it this time while you guys rebuild. And so they renamed the city Neo-Caesarea to say thanks, emperor. Um, but then strangely enough, a few years later, another emperor decided that he was going to come through, and in order to, to increase the grain production, he was going to say, half of all of your vineyards, your, um, your, your vine crop, need to be cut off at the root. The problem is it takes a lot of years for those vines to grow back. So these people were crippled economically. Okay, their, their city gets leveled. The emperor comes through a few decades later, and he cuts off their main source of income. 
They're always subject to these earthquakes. Another earthquake could happen at any time. These, these believers are believers who are living in daily uncertainty. And when you live in daily uncertainty, there is a temptation to begin to trust in things other than Jesus. So let's read the, the, the story here. Revelation chapter 3, verse 7. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write... The words of the Holy One, the True One, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. I know your works. Okay, we expect to hear a rebuke here. Every time he said, I know your works, there comes a, there comes a, a correction. But he says, I know your works. He just keeps going. Behold, I have set before you an open door, which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power. And yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan, okay, strong words, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet and they will learn that I have loved you. Because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to those who dwell on the earth. I'm coming soon. Hold fast. You hear this. Endure, persevere, overcome. Hold fast. Hold fast to what you have so that no one may seize your crown. The one who conquers, the one who overcomes, the one who endures, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it. And I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven and my own new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So I have three points. The first one is this. That God, wants, God wants the church in Philadelphia to understand three things. Number one is this. He wants them to understand the identity and the power of of their God. He wants them to understand the identity and power of their God. Look what he says back in verse 7. He begins this way, as if to say, this is what's most important. This is what I want to say to you first. He says, and to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, the words of the Holy One, the True One. He's giving characteristics about himself. He's saying, this is who I am. The one who has the key of David. It's interesting. We'll unpack that in a minute. Who opens and no one will shut. And who shuts and no one opens. He's talking about the power of God to do things that no one else can do. Nothing can stiffen the spine and the resolve of the people of God like remembering who their God is. And here's a temptation for us as we kind of survey what our culture is telling us today. Our culture says things like you just need more self-confidence or you need a different perspective on your situation or you, you need this or that. I would suggest to you that the main thing that we need during trial, during uncertainty, is a renewed vision of who our God is. That's what we need. If it's good enough for the church that is having their members killed every day, I think it's good enough for us. We need a renewed vision of who God is and what he is like. 
Take note about what God is saying about himself. He's saying he's holy. Okay, we, we have a decent understanding of what that means. He's set apart. He's, he's, uh, he's other. He's, he's worthy of, of worship. And he says he's true. He's the holy one. He's the true one. In other words, against the claims of the Jews who were saying that that Jesus guy is an imposter. He says, no, no. I'm the holy one. I'm the true one. In other words, he's trustworthy. He's the one who does not lie. Titus says that God is unable to lie. It's against his character. And then thirdly, he holds keys. It's an interesting phrase. It says that he holds the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, and shuts and no one opens. So what is this key of David? We've got to do a little bit of Old Testament work here, right? We have to unpack this because it's very important to expose what's in the text. So in Isaiah 22... Um, it says this, Isaiah twenty two nineteen. 19, um, it talks about how there was a king, Hezekiah, and God said that basically Hezekiah's secretary of state, it was time for him to leave, and God was raising up a new man named Eliakim. And it says this about Eliakim. In that day, I will call my servant Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, and I will clothe him with your robe, and I will bind your sash on him and will commit your authority to his hand. And he shall be a father to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and to the house of Judah. And I will place on his shoulder the key of the house of David. He shall open and no one shall shut. And he shall shut and no one shall open. And I will fasten him. Don't miss this. I will fasten him like a peg in a secure place. And he will become a throne of honor to his father's house. And they will hang on him and the whole honor of his father's house, the offspring and the issue, every small vessel. In that day, declares the Lord, the peg that was fastened in a secure place will give way. Okay, so this is very interesting. He's saying this Eliakim guy, he will be a good guy for a season. He will be like a secure tent peg. Like if you're going camping on the back side of the mountain and you, and you pitched your, your tent on the, on the wrong side of the mountain and the wind's blowing, you better hope that those tent pegs are secure, or else it's going to be a long night. And he says, but one day that, tick, that tent peg will come loose. Okay, so what Eliakim is, is called a type of Christ. He's a foreshadow. You know, if you, I used to take Motor Trend magazine. Motor Trend comes out with, like, uh, concept cars, with prototypes. Like, hey, maybe in 2024, Jeep will roll this thing out, and it looks really cool, and they never end up doing it. Okay, but that's what Eliakim is like. He's a type, he's a shadow of what's to come. He's a shadow of the better reality of Jesus. Okay, there are types all in the Old Testament. David is another one. Okay, what a type does is it tells us true things about God, but it sets us up to be disappointed so that we will hope for the better thing. Does that make sense? Because I think about David. David's a warrior. He's a king. He's a man after God's own heart. He's all of these things. He, he, when all of the other Israelites are shaking in their boots, David is like, who is this Philistine Goliath who raises himself up against the God of Israel? And he goes and, and knocks down Goliath. He's, he's the guy you want to be, except he's not because he fails. He sins with Bathsheba. So he's a type of Christ. He shows how Jesus will be a good king. He will be a warrior. He, he will do everything that we wish we could do, except David's not really the thing. He's just the shadow. But there will come one who will never sin. There will come one who will never let you down. There will come one who will win every battle. 
and his name is Jesus. So what we're seeing here in Eliakim is something that's looking forward to what we should expect to see later in the Old Testament. It says that, um, that Jesus, is, Jesus is holy and true. That's why we know that Eliakim, while Eliakim will come loose, his, his tent peg, which seems secure, ended up not being. There will be one in the New Testament who will come, and he will be a secure tent peg. You can fasten your entire life to him, and he will never be uprooted. And that is who we see in Jesus. Very, very important. Jesus um, holds the keys to the kingdom. Eliakim holds the keys to the kingdom. But unlike Eliakim, this, this peg won't come loose. And Jesus, what Jesus says, stands forever because he will never die. The little word of application. I don't know what brought you in to, to church this morning. Perhaps it's what you've done for the last 50 years. Perhaps it's your first Sunday in a, in a Christian church at all. Uh, what I can tell you is that Jesus Christ is the only sure foundation upon which you can fix your life. He's the only peg that won't come up. He's the only one who won't disappoint. He doesn't shift. He doesn't come undone. So fix your life on him this morning. Believer, perhaps you're walking through unimaginable sorrow and hardship. I don't know when it will end. But I do know that Jesus won't move. And so in the middle of that, I don't want to seem trite, but in the middle of whatever you're going through, have a renewed vision. Return to the scriptures. Reorient yourself with what the Bible says Jesus is like. And if it will sustain the church in Revelation through the threat of death, it will sustain you. I promise that it will. Secondly, Secondly, not only did God want them to have a, to understand the identity and power of their God, he wanted them to understand the justice of God. This is very practical because these believers are being persecuted. Here's a little bit about what's going on here. In the early church, you remember when Jesus walked the earth, he taught in the temple. So many times in the temples and the synagogues, the ideas about Jesus and Christianity were being talked about in those places. Some of the people who came to Christ were Gentiles. Some of them were Jews who had always grown up in the temple, and they had always associated nearness to God with being in that place, in that building. Okay, and what had happened was the Jews in Philadelphia, like in every other city, they had excommunicated the new Christians, the people who had gone to follow Christ. They had said, you can't come to the synagogue anymore. What that felt like to those new Christians was that they were separated from God now because they had grown up always knowing that that place over there that I go to every week, that's where the presence of God is. And here are the Jews saying, you can't come here. You're cut off from God. You're not the true people of God. We're the true people of God. That's what's going on here. And Jesus calls them the synagogue of Satan. Strong words. Strong words. How can Jesus say this about these Jews, these people who are persecuting the the new Christians, many of whom are ethnically Jewish? It says this in Romans 2, 28. Listen to these words and and let let this hit you like it is meant to hit you. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly. 
nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart by the Spirit, not by the letter. In other words, there were a group of people who were saying, we know who the true people of God are. They have this bloodline and they have these markings. But Jesus says, no, the true people of God are those who have had a change of heart and who bear my name. That's who the true people of God are. And what, what is happening here when he says this, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews but are not, and they lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. They tried to cut you off from my presence, but I'm going to make sure that they know that my presence is with you. They might can excommunicate you out of the building, but they can't make the Holy Spirit depart from you. And that is what's going on here in verses 10 through 13. Because you have kept my word about patient, I'm sorry, verses uh, um, 8 through 8 and 9. Um, For I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews but are not and lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before you. He's saying two things here. He's saying, I hold the real keys, not the culture, not those people. I hold the real keys. I am the door. Remember the words of Jesus? I am the door. I am the way, the truth, and the life. It might be tempting because of how you grew up to not understand that, but it's true. I am the door I hold the real keys. When I open and allow you in, nobody can shut the door. Nobody can force you back out. This is exactly what the Philadelphian Christians needed to hear. What they have, no one can take away. Outward appearances don't matter. Knowing Christ is a matter of the heart. And he says this, he says, I know you have I know you, ha- you don't have much power. I know you have but little power, and yet you have remained faithful. Here's a translation. Translation, something roughly like this. I know you're a small church. I know you're new believers. I know you don't have much cultural influence. I know that you're persecuted. I know you're afraid. I know your environment is shifting. I know the emperor came in and cut off uh, the crop. I know that the, that the earthquake leveled your city. I know that you used to be on the postal route, but now that doesn't matter much because the city crumbled. I know that, um, that, the, that the, you can't even go to church and be safe because these people are saying that you're not the real people of God. I know you wake up every morning with uncertainty, but you have kept my word and you have kept my name. This gives us a great encouragement, folks. It tells us this. It tells us how God judges churches. God does not judge churches based on any of the metrics that men can, can come up with. He judges churches based on have they denied or are they keeping the name of Jesus? Why is that important? Why is it important to keep the name of Jesus? It's because of Acts 4.12. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. What that means is that you have to have personal knowledge 
of who Jesus was and what he did for you in order to come to him, in order to be in his family. And churches who lose that no longer have anything to offer their neighborhood and the nations. Might as well just become the Lions Club or do some good community outreach or, or, or whatever. Nothing wrong with the Lions Club, but we have something that no other organization on the face of the earth has. And that is we can tell people who holds the keys to the kingdom and how they can get in. Number three, there is a reward, the reward of their God. Jesus wants them not only to know about the identity and the power of their God, not only about the justice of their God, how he will set things straight, he will correct these people who persecute you, but he wants them to know that there is a reward that comes along with this. In verses 10 through 13, so we're overlapping just a little bit. Verse 10, because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. I am coming soon. Hold fast what you have so that no one may seize your crown. The one who conquers, the one who overcomes, the one who endures, the one who presses on, right? I'm doing an amplified Bible thing. I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it. I will write on him the name of my God, the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, the one that comes down out of heaven. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The letter, this whole letter is very positive, right? There's no rebuke. Like I said earlier, it's one of only two churches that didn't get a rebuke. Like a, hey, you need to fix this thing. But that doesn't mean that God doesn't have any instructions for them. He actually says there are some things you need to do, namely press on. Why? Because they, like us, are always in danger of drifting. Do you feel that in your heart? Don't you feel that? Don't you feel like every morning when you wake up, it's a brand new battle about what you're going to trust in? Are you going to depend on Jesus? Or are you going to depend on the product of your hands? He says, trust in him, hold fast, press on, it will be worth it. This is the question we all have to ask and answer of ourselves when it comes to persevering. Is it worth it? And I'll put something to you. Here's a, an undeniable truth. I, I defy you to, to, to tell me this is wrong. Those who leave the faith do so always because they have estimated in their minds that the reward elsewhere is better than the reward in Christ. That's a temptation we all face. The shiny stuff is appealing for a reason. And don't let anybody tell you that it won't satisfy. It will, but just for a moment. It doesn't satisfy in the long term, but there's an appeal to all the stuff that we're tempted to trust in. And the appeal is that it works for a few moments. And it doesn't last. It doesn't, doesn't preserve. It perishes. We have to answer a question every morning. Are we going to believe or not that the reward in Christ is better and is sweeter and is more fulfilling 
and is more satisfying than the reward somewhere else. If I can use a crude illustration, it reminds me of the little marshmallow test. You ever seen that video where they bring the little kids into a room and, and they set them down in a chair and the adult says, I'm going to give you a marshmallow. And here's the deal, you can eat it if you want to. But if you wait until I come back, and they don't tell them how long that's going to be, if you wait until I come back, you can have two marshmallows. So it's a test about who can delay gratification. Are you going to get your gratification right now? Or are you willing to wait longer for something better? And you watch these little kids, man. It's, it's probably only like five minutes, but the little kids are like right down there. on the, They're like the marshmallows right here. They're looking like, like the thing's going to get bigger maybe if I, if I get closer to it. We're not talking about marshmallows. We're talking about eternal matters. The same principle is in play, though. This life offers all kinds of gratification right now, and you can have it if you want it. But for those who consider Christ altogether worthy, then we know that there's nothing that this world has that compares to what's coming. So where is your treasure? How can we endure? The only way we can endure is if we believe that God holds the real keys, that he has the real manna, that he is the true door, not the culture. He opens and no one shuts. He closes and no one opens. Another outworking of this point is this, is that there is a kind of suffering that God will spare his people from, and there's a kind of suffering that he will allow his people to endure. Okay, this is not a very fun message. Apparently, verse 10 has a lot of debate among the different commentators. It says this, I will keep you from the hour of trial. Um, you know, I, I have my views. I'm not here to share all my views, but, but here's what I do know. What I do know is that God does not promise to spare his people from suffering or even intense persecution. If that were the case, then the people who first read this would not have understood it because they were undergoing all manner of persecution. They were undergoing all manner of hardship. Here's what I do know about the heart of God. That God will use the hardship that he allows to make you more like Jesus. Philippians 1.6 He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. Listen to the words of Jesus when he says this in John 17. I have given them your word and the world has hated them because they are not of the world just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world that you pluck them from suffering, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world just as I am not of the world, but sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. Now, whatever you do, God the Father, make them more Christ-like. Don't necessarily keep them, pluck them out of, of suffering, but make them more like me. The beauty of walking with Christ is not that we will escape hardship, the beauty is that when those hardships come, Christ will be near and he will stiffen our spines. Listen to the words of Isaiah 42. A bruised reed he will not break and a faintly burning wick he will not snuff out. If you came in this morning and on your back you thought if one more straw is added I might break, let me encourage you to see the heart of God that it is not his desire to kick you while you're down. It is not his desire to break a bruised reed. 
It is not his desire to snuff out the little fire that is just faintly burning in you. But it is his desire to use that to make you more like himself. I can't tell you how long the trial will last, but I can tell you this, that it's not purposeless. It has an eternal purpose. I hope that encourages you. I hope it encourages you. And what are the believers in Philadelphia promised? If they do endure, look at verse 12. It says this, The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. A pillar? Imagine this. Imagine telling a city that every building was raised to the ground by an earthquake. Imagine telling them, I'm going to make you a pillar in the city of God. He's using imagery because these people have grown up and they see nothing but pillars crumble. And he's saying to them, I'm going to make out of you a pillar, a strong post in a city that will never crumble. Just press on. Just endure. Keep on pressing on. Keep on keeping on. A pillar is an object of security. He's saying, put, don't, don't put your trust in buildings. Put your trust in me. He says, secondly, I will make him a, a pillar. He said, never shall he go out of it. And I will write on him the name of my God. That's powerful. Listen to what he's saying. He's saying they will bear God's very own name. The other people may be able to go in and out of the synagogue as they please. They may be able to flaunt themselves and say, hey, I'm the true people of God. But he says, I will write my name on you. And you will know whose you are. Isaiah 31 says this, For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts. Those people may have God's law on stone tablets, but I'm going to write it on your heart and claim you as mine. That's what he's saying here. The Old Testament is replete. It's full of references to God putting his name on his people. I will prove that you are mine, he's saying. I will save you in the end. Just keep pressing on. And he says, you will have a new city, and I will put my name on the city. Remember way back at the beginning of my little talk, how I said that when Caesar, the, the, the Caesar kind of forgave the debt that they owed, that they changed the name of the city to Neo-Caesarea, okay? And God is saying, you know what? I'm going to make you a citizen of a city that bears my name. I'm a better king. I'm a better ruler than the Caesar. My city never crumbles. The vines don't get cut in my city. The buildings don't crumble. My city lasts forever. So here's, here's what I'll close with. I'll close with a couple of different applications. To, to the believer in the room, the, the one who's coming here, you, you know that you're, you're following Christ, you're, you're, uh, you, you've, you've trusted in him, you know that the, your only hope of salvation is, is the finished work of Jesus that was put onto your account. It may be that you're going through a season where it's like all your pegs seem to be coming up. All the tent pegs seem to be coming loose. Things are not going well. You've driven down so many, and they, they just keep coming up. But let me encourage you to remember the nature and the identity of your God. He never moves. He is your security. What you are going through is not purposeless. You may be enjoying grand days. You may be enjoying good days. Perhaps everything is going right. 
Be careful that you don't begin to trust in the vineyards and the pillars. Because the vineyards and the pillars and the buildings of this world will be cut, will burn, and will crumble. But there is another city. There is another city that you can place your trust in. And it is coming and it is given to those who have God's name written on them. Perhaps there are some of you in the room who know that God's name has never been written on you. You have never come to him and say, I need you. You've never come to God and, say, and said, well, I'm a sinner. I need you to take my badness and I need your goodness because I can't build up enough to, to get into heaven. Jesus desires this morning to write his name on you, to claim you as his, to invite you into his city, and to do so with security. Why? Because he holds the keys. And when he opens, nobody shuts. What he gives you, nobody can take away. You may still go through the highs and lows. He is the peg that is still secure so I'll ask you are, you, are you tired of it? Are you tired of continuing to live for yourself? Has it become stale yet? If it hasn't, it will. But Jesus has a city. He holds the keys to it. And what he gives, no one can take away. Jesus died on the cross for you so that he could write his name on you and so that he could give you a better purpose, an eternal purpose. So I'd ask you boldly, would you come? Would you respond to him? Believer, would you repent of the, of the things you've been trusting in? I ask you to, to consider what Jesus demands of you this morning. I'm going to pray, and when I pray, there's going to be some music, and there's going to be some time for some response. Perhaps that response means something different for each of you. Perhaps you know, don't check out yet, don't check out. Perhaps you know someone who is near to you but far from God. And you need to come up here and pray for them. Pray that God would write his name on them and allow them into his city. That he would chase them and go after them with a burning passion that they can't resist. Perhaps this morning you need to come and you say, the Lord has never written his name on me. I am not part of his people, but I want to be. If that's you, please come. Let's pray. Lord, you are so good to us. You have given us your word. You have not left us in confusion. You have not um, left us in the dark. You've given us everything that we need to know you and to live for you. Your word says that we have everything that we need for life and godliness. I pray that for the one who knows that person, who has that person right now on their mind, that person who, who is near to them but far from God, that they would use this, this Easter season to remind themselves of how far God brought us and so that God can do the same work in that friend, in that family member that we're thinking about. Lord, I pray that, that we would be a church that is marked by brokenness and prayer over those who are near to us and far from God. I pray for those who have perhaps the one who has walked in today and who recognizes where they stand. They stand outside of God. They stand outside of his city, but they want to come in, Lord, that you offer that today. Help us to respond to you in the way that, that, you, that you require. In the name of Jesus, amen.
This time of teaching is brought to you by Abner Creek Baptist Church. For more information, visit www.abnercreekbaptist.com.